High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. The long-awaited report into the Olympic ticket scandal, as you heard, uh, there on news uh, has been concluded by Judge Carol Morn. And Patty, as he always said, uh, would be found innocent of any criminal activity. It's unfortunate, of course, that the uh, Pro 10, which has now been unseen as unfit for purpose, uh, was actually d- a disguised uh, member of, a, of the TSG group who had cre- previously been rejected uh, and, in fact, were under police investigation for activities during the World Cup in 2014. There was, however, no criminal activity. Pat Hickey himself and the boss of TSG H.G. Marcus and Evans had a concealed relationship. But there's nothing wrong with concealing your relationship with somebody who gives a million quid to the Olympic Council of Ireland. Um, the the of course uh, the investigation was hampered by the absence of cooperation of people like Patty himself, T.H. The ticket seller, the International Olympic Committee, and the Rio Organizing Committee. Um, and therefore, Judge Carl Morn was in no position to find out where and what happened to uh, all the tickets uh, that the Irish Olympic Council had. And it's also uh, certainly not criminal, but disappointing that the Olympic Council of Ireland, according to Judge Morn, showed more concern for the commercial interests of the ticket reseller than for the interests of the athletes, their friends, relatives and supporters, or those of the spectating public. And uh, Pat Hickey now leaves without a stain on his character. Uh, he will be able to rest easy on his honorary of 60,000 a year proposed by his good pal John Delaney of the FAI although Judge Carl Moan did say that 60,000 a year as an honorarium was not consistent with the interpretation of an honorarium as a nominal payment to honour a voluntary contribution. Irish athletes, their friends and their families can now rest easy that the tickets will be in the hands of the same people who looked after it in Rio until 2026. Uh, Well done, Olympic Council of Ireland. Well, there's a significant increase or in the latest report in the number of children waiting over 18 months for an outpatient uh, appointment. This is something of the order of 450%. Uh, also, of course, uh, the issue of trolleys, I mean, I've just lost the trolley number now is a nonsense because we have no idea what it means. There's just zillions of people, most of them old age pensioners, lying on, t- on trolleys for uh, an overly long wait. Well, my next guest is a regular on the program and she's now a columnist with the Medical Independent. Formerly, she was president of the IMO and she is a consultant geriatrician. All those make her eminently qualified to talk to me about the crisis. Christine O'Malley, welcome to the program. All right, okay, what's going on? I mean, this is... I, I, you see, if we start using words like unacceptable, oh, and no. crisis, and waste, 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 waste of time, waste of time. So, yeah. what are we talking about? I don't know. Well, um, actually, 
I gather you have the same reaction that I have, that waiting lists are possibly the most boring subject one could possibly talk about. Yeah. Because that's how I feel. You know, it is the most boring thing. But it is also very, very important. And trolleys tend to not be, not be as boring, but they are extremely important. And I actually liked in your little uh, intro there, you said about the trolleys, we don't know what we're counting anymore. That is exactly right. And it's, it's also true for the waiting lists. We don't know what we're counting anymore. And um, I think it is shocking, appalling, sickening, actually very serious. And I can tell you why I know it's serious. Not only do, um, have I seen it in my medical life, but over the past year, I keep encountering it in my personal life. And I find that actually quite riveting. So we call it riveting. How's that? That's a better word. That's a nice word. Yeah. So usually as a doctor, you know, you know, the, the, the party conversation or the, oh, delighted I met you, by the way, I, you know, normally it'd be I have an appointment next week with the doctor about my, eh, and, and we'd have a medical conversation. We no longer have those conversations. It's about how do I get through the system? Or they don't, don't even know. They start blaming the consultant. I think, Jesus, the poor consultant. Because the consultant is actually helpless in this mix most of the time. So um, I have to... I have to do a mixed talk. I did one only last week. About every week I do one of these, whereas I have to to um, mix in explaining the medical problem, but it's got so caught up in the process of care problem that actually we're there for an hour talking about it, trying to unpick where they should push, push the door open. We now have a government. Of course, they will blame their predecessors, but, but we now have a government who is lamentable in providing health care for the citizens. It is lamentable in uh, providing, not your bailiwick, housing for its citizens. It is lamentable in its ability to, to provide a worthwhile education system for its children. Uh, wouldn't we be better off without a government, therefore? <laughs> No, I'm sure no, Vladimir, no, 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 I'm I, sure I, Vladimir Putin yeah. actually yeah. would provide a better service. Castro would appear. Uh, Dr. Hickey, who you probably know. I know, know. Yeah, I know, I know, I know Hickey, by, by he, famous repute, yes. Yeah, he yeah. was a huge fan yes, of yes, yes. the service in Cuba. Okay, but it's a completely different way of doing it. They do it all from the ground up. They do it by district area. People who I know who stayed in Cuba say, if you don't go for your flu vaccination, they hunt you down and jab you. Right. So you have to accept all that. You have to accept that it's all in a public system. I mean, it, it, the whole thing, you know, it's, it's done apparently, apparently on each block area, there's a nurse living on the block and that person is responsible for whatever they're, but, and get, you know, make sure the job is done. But it'd be done her way, perhaps, rather than the way you'd like it done. And, you know, I'm not, I, I know, I, I'm a fan of, of Cuba, but it's a different way of doing things. You try corralling the Irish people in that kind of system and, you know, you might have a revolution in your hands. You might, but you might, that's what yeah. we always say, like. Yeah. We always say we're different. But look what we have by being different. Mm. We have yeah. A housing shambles and education shambles, yeah. a health shambles, and probably a few other ones as well. Okay, well, I will take a shambles for the Olympics. Yes, absolutely. T- totally agree there. Let's pick education. Because sometimes I wonder what earth is going on at the thinking level. Because I can see all kinds of, there's all kinds of policy stuff washing around. And like, you know, we had not the Sloan Care Report, which most artists can't go meh about, you know, like it, it didn't even impact on anybody. You know, this is the 10 year report, the future of the health service. And the doctors don't care, haven't even paid attention to it. But just take, take education. Because what happens in government in, in some things when they, um, that they know what the solution is, they either don't, they either, they, they either wait until they have to do it and then they do something. Like that's what they did with tax seed, tax seed regulation. Bertie waited, 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 waited until it was an absolute crisis and, and everyone was shouting. And then he, then he took on the tax seeds and, and, and uh, deregulated and it caused a lot of problems. Whatever, right? Education, what's going to happen is the birth rate has fallen dramatically. 
We used to have nearly 80,000 births. We're now down to 65,000 births. You wait a couple of years, there will be no problem entering primary school. There will be no problem, zero, zero problem. So they know that. They're looking at the figures. The figures have fallen off a cliff. So education will actually solve itself because of emigration, lack of immigration, uh, just uh, uh, changes in the birth rate, changes in the, the birth rate here in Ireland, right? So that's one problem. I'm only saying that housing, it's kind of uh, easier to understand housing, it's lack of houses. You know, the housing thing fell off a cliff. Okay. No houses are built. But I want Health, and people don't understand it yet. All right. Now, you were probably only in first year medical in uh, university when your man was the Minister for Health. Uh, and I can't remember his Rory name. Rory Hanlon? Uh, he was a Labour Party. Uh, oh, he, no, yeah. He yeah. was uh, yeah. uh, the TD for Dunleary Rat Down. Okay, I can't Then he got a cool job like a lot of them do over in Europe at the Court of Auditors or something. Now, the reason I say that is because that has to be over 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. right? And my father Mm -hmm. was unseen in uh, the the um, hospital for 18 hours was unseen and when i went in the nurse said to me when i raised an enormous fuss the nurse says give the minister a ring a julie barry desmond there's the guy i rang him and i gave him a rollicking over the phone as a constituent first does it work no, of course not. Right, right. You know, but like uh, he, he, there were more than my father. I mean, you can there rest. Was, there, was short, my, there was but my that father. Was then. There was my father. My father was in a Dublin hospital on uh, on a on a trolley. Now he actually, to our amazement, it was, it was around the time of the millennium, so it's seventeen years ago. It was, it was the millennium, right. not, not millennium New Year's Eve, it's the day or two before that, and this awful flu bag going round, and he was terribly ill. And I remember thinking he's going to be on a trolley overnight, and being amazed that actually at two in the morning, we actually, we went with him to a ward. So yeah, he, he was a lucky one. He was yes, quite sick. But the, the thing here, the point I'm trying to make yeah, so it is there this 18 years ago. has been around Absolutely. forever. Well, no, not forever. 18 years. That's about right. I mean, my dad was on a trolley but got to bed at two in the morning. My, 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 these are people who have passed on since. My mum was on a trolley overnight uh, three years later, 2003. She fell and broke her arm, needed to have surgery to the arm, was kept overnight in the A&E. And I kept saying to, saying to her, that's, that's astonishing, you know, because to me that was a measure of how bad things were. That she, I'm a consultant, and this is my mum, you know, I'm, I mean, I, people had known my name. She had a lot of VHI. They both had a lot of VHI. And she was a trolley overnight. And she kept saying, oh, but I was very well looked after. I said, but you were on a trolley. Therefore, trolleys are a problem. So the trolley problem began back then. But if you go back and look at the, at the figures, they, they, the beds were 18,000. I can't remember when it was, maybe 20, 30 years ago, perhaps. The beds have been cut, 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 cut. And in 2007, they came in and said, we don't even need that number of beds. We need less beds. So it's all, it's all about beds, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's a, a very large chunk of it is about beds. But, it, well, you don't need a bed for an outpatient appointment. So Agreed. why are children Agreed. waiting 18 months for an outpatient? I mean, I can't, I'm trying to get this around my head. head my yeah. child is ill now, yeah. right? And I want an outpatient appointment, appointment. for my child. Yeah. And they say 18 
18 months. How do yeah. I get my head around that? Yeah. Now, you, you do have to realise that outpatient points are a bit different to inpatient appointments, sorry, to trolleys. Trolleys, nobody in their right mind in the last 20 years in Ireland goes to an A&E unless they're really either sick or afraid that they're, that they're sick. Because no one, they all know it's going to be 12 hours. So no one goes to an A&E. But you, your name may go onto a waiting list for an outpatient appointment, not, and not usually for a procedure, but for an outpatient appointment when you aren't that sick. It may even be a case that, that the doctors, this happens a lot, that the GPs are looking at this, at this clogged up system and to cope, they'll say to the parent, I am going to refer your child to the, to the hospital. He may not need it. Things may resolve in the meantime. And that child's name is on the list. And then things either do or don't resolve. So, but no one takes the name off the list because the world has moved on. The family may have moved GPs. The GP may not know anymore what's going on. Or they may, they, they may even think, think the child's been seen. But like that's a different problem. I mm. mean, that seems there, there, there are people suffering with emotionless. Um, um, and again, I, I, some of, of my friends in the last while, it's been about. Um, I, um, I met a child um, t- uh, two or three weeks ago. A child connected to me, a small fellow starting school this autumn, and he can't hear his mother speak to him because he needs he's having ear ear problems and needs to have a, a procedure done. And when he does, the problem will almost certainly resolve. He cannot hear his mother speak, and he's waiting for a procedure. And but, I know that child. Uh, all right. Um, so, so people are suffering on waiting lists. But I'm just, just, I'm just saying that... But what is, you can do, mm, though, what you mm. can do is you can pay your way out of the problem. Isn't that right? O- only some kinds of cases. Some kinds of people, some kinds of patients and some kinds well, of Well, the patients. first thing is yeah. if we take the insurance question. Yeah. I'm more likely, if I want my knee fixed, I'm more likely to be able to get an artificial knee if I have, uh, in my case, VHI, and I get a consultant and he'll see me on Thursday and he'll take my knee out on Monday. On the other hand, if I'm an unfortunate person who can't afford insurance, I go on a list. And Agreed. it might be yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, agreed. And so um, I can pay my way out of the problem, um, particularly for things like hip and knee. Private hospitals are, are very good hip and knee hospitals, but um, some of the people I, that I have encountered in the last while have health insurance, and because of what the problem is, they can't um, pay out of it. So it depends what your problem is. Hip and knees are very good examples of things that private hospitals do extremely well. A relative of mine has had two hips done in a private hospital. Very happy with the outcome, right? But uh, as, as I say, other people that I've been dealing with in the last while, trying to talk through the problems, um, had health insurance actually and couldn't buy the way out of the problem. Well, where is, like, listening to you though, and I've listened to you a number of times, there isn't a solution here. There are there solutions. Might, I mean, like the French surely have found a solution, or the Norwegians, or okay, let's take the, the French because uh, yes, there's been a little bit of correspondence lately in the Irish Times that I had a right. quick look at, and I began to laugh because one person wrote it in saying, "Oh, the French system is much better." I said, "When you go and you get triage over the phone, that's grand. Okay, fine. By a doc, by a doctor, that's the most expensive. That's a more expensive triage than the." In, uh, in Ireland, it's a nurse, so it's more expensive. But then they, they, they take you to the correct hospital and they bring you, they whisk you through the A&E to a ward. That's the point where I began to laugh. There are no ward beds available. Um, the whole problem in Ireland is that the wards are stuffed full of people. If a hospital has one person on a trolley in A&E at 8am, it's because they are overflowing out of the wards into the A&E. We're so used to hearing 20 trolleys and 40 trolleys. We would think that one trolley is good. One trolley in A&E is one person who couldn't get a ward bed. All right. but And the French have beds. Is that what yeah. you're saying? 
Yes, you're saying. yes. And Germany is, is coming down with beds if we were following the German system. And by the way, the Slauncha Care report from the recent one from, from the, 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 the Doyle Committee, um, um, Roisin Schwartel, that they, they came out with Slauncha Care saying that we should, we should stop following the American system and follow the European system. That's great. And that actually is an insurance-based system. That's fine. And it's based on lots of hospital beds. And the, um, uh, the German system, if, we, if Germany, for the same population um, in, in the German system, Ireland would have twice as many hospital beds. We would have 20,000 hospital beds. We only have 10,000. Well, we haven't got the money for it. Because, well, okay. no, but Deputy okay. Paul, I mean, yeah, I'm, okay. I mean, I'm not a fan of Deputy Boyd Barrett and Deputy Boyd Paul Murphy, as you know, yeah. but, but it, like, if, if there was a suggestion that tax rates were raised in mm-hmm. order to have extra pos- mm-hmm. uh, hospital beds, there probably would be a march down O'Connell Street. Might well be. I'm not sure. You'd be quite surprised if if people saw a clear answer. At the moment, they cannot see a clear. They see a blurry answer. If they saw a clear answer, they might buy it. But I'm not going to go there. At the moment, apparently, we pay quite a lot for healthcare in Ireland. But an awful lot of it is out of your pocket cash. It's not public money. Like one third in Ireland, which is among the highest. We're the same as Portugal, I think, and Greece. So in in Germany, it's and France, it's tiny amounts out of your pocket. It's actually mostly through taxes. So it's it's so we're paying high costs. But it's this way, you know. Actually, you know, you know, we own personal dosh. But um, but uh, in yeah. Germany and France, they don't have two people in the line, one with insurance presum- and one without. They don't have that, presumably. Everybody's the same, are they? I actually can't answer that because they, France and Germany are both social insurance-based systems. So uh, there may well be a case that the more you pay, the, the, the faster you get. I can't answer that. But in general, everybody gets because they're all, they're, they're all, insur- they're all private patients. So the problem with that is that you can't skip the queue. And right. I people like skipping the queue by paying Correct. my share. Yeah. But, it, yeah. but it's interesting to talk about the American system. Yes. Yes. American medicine is based entirely mm. on how much you can afford. Yes. Entirely. Yes. So, I mean, there's yes. no doubt, God forbid I should get a cancer or a heart failure. Yes. Uh, my chances of living longer are better in America than they are anywhere else, but I'd pay a only, fortune only for Only if you pay if you pay, pay a fortune for Yeah, yes, that's right, yes. Um, and the, the thing that troubles you're saying about, about solutions, and uh, the um, the thing that troubles me is that, um, and, and so, so, so one point I liked about the Care Report is that they said uh, follow European, um, which to me means stop following America, because the American system is extremely fragmented. It's all based on everyone is discharged immediately, immediately, immediately. If you have a baby, you know, as soon as the baby is born, you're out the door. Whereas Ireland at least gives you one night, you know, to 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 see if the baby is still is is is, is okay. But um, and if you have anything done, it's, they do it all. You know, you have this chest on there, that chest on there. And the the Irish system has begun to mo- has modelled on that. It's all about discharge out, have done as an outpatient. So then you have my friend who was in a Dublin hospital with um, um, was discovered to, to have a, a heart rhythm problem. Was in a Dublin hospital. Was overnight on a trolley. And I can tell you, she wasn't counted as a trolley because she wasn't put in. Um, you're, you're only counted as a trolley if you are, are destined for a ward bed. And I think she wasn't. She was being kept in the A and E, so she didn't count on a trolley for, for, overnight. And then she uh, was supposed to have tests done for her heart and outpatient appointment. People beside her were being wheeled up to have the test done, but they were, they were the ones who were well. They were going to be discharged with their test done and, she, and seen by a doctor. She wasn't seen. She had to queue. She was told to be, to be eight months for the test and a year to see the consultant. She had been, they, they put her on medication. She was in the hospital here in Dublin, busy hospital that I think very highly of. They put her on medication, two heart, two different heart medications and booked her in a year's time for But are a, a, we, a isn't there a sense, because so, I, so I, I, so before, the, before, 
we did it all at one time. You, 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 if you were if you were in the A and E, if you were in a, a ward bed, you were you were prioritised. So we are, we now have an unprioritised system. It's all fragmented out. So um, if, if you if you need to be kept in hospital like that overnight, you were a priority. You got the first appointment for the heart test. You got seen by the consultant or the, by you know someone senior who said this is what we're going to do. Go home and and think about all that and come back in a month's time for your follow up appointment. But she's waiting for a first appointment. Um, for, so the American system does that. It's all fragmented. But then they have loads of scanners and loads. Of machines. So if you do the American way, you've lots of machines and you pay twice the price for your health service. And if you do the European way, you've lots of beds. So this, you can, we can choose. In the middle, we're, 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 um, at the moment, we're in the middle, particularly middle course. But people, listeners, like mm. one listener take, takes her child to, to Poland uh, for adenoid treatment. It costs yeah. her 400 quid in yeah. Poland. Yeah, great. And the only the only drawback is, as you know, lots of people go to Hungary for for their teeth. You know? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so and I've met people doing that. But the only problem then is if things go wrong. Plus also, some things like a child's out of noise, actually it's part of an ongoing problem. Yeah, but the, the, the Irish doctors and dentists, mm. in the face of the competition from Europe, will, mm. will actually p- put the exact argument that you put forward, which may be right or may be wrong. Yeah, I know, right, yeah, yeah. What happens if it goes wrong? You can't yeah. go back to the fellow in Budapest or Krakow. Yeah. When you go to your own doctor and dentist, he says, ah, bad job, I have to start all over yeah. again. No, I, 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 we, leave te- we leave teeth aside because teeth is, is a more planned thing and sometimes all it's right. cosmetic, so that's simpler, right? Okay, but um, adenoids, that's a child who has who has a problem and I just wonder if, um, and I'm, I know... Well, I, would I know you not go... Yeah. Yeah. My guess by the way, is Christine O'Malley, <laughs> formerly president of the IMO, now writing about the problem for the medical independent. But if you you must know this as a mm. doctor, if you're a parent, you're looking at your child, oh, it's your child has an enormous problem, yeah. and they're telling you, come back in 18 months, yeah. and, and the fella in Warsaw is saying, saying pop over in the morning. Are week, you not yeah. going to go yeah. in the morning? I have to say that I wouldn't, even though, um, and like this child that I, I met, I have met this, I have met a similar child. I told you he's he's starting school yes. soon, and he can't hear his mother speak, so he's going to have a problem in the classroom. But 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 um, she, I, I, if she wants to go to Warsaw, I'd say please don't. I promise you, I would. Now, I'll give you a parallel, a simpler, a closer to home example. Some people, um, uh, you know, the NTPF used to pay for people to go, like say hips and knees, to go out of the public system and be done in private in Ireland. That was kind of okay because it's planned procedures. They ran into problems when they began sending people with arthritis or even eye problems. People had had their eyes done. But what GP said to me was someone was sent off, they had their cataract done, a fantastic job done. But the problem is if you've one problem with your eye, you probably have more problems with your eyes. And when you next have an eye problem, if you're in the system the first time, if you've waited those that time, they regard you as one of their own and they'll bring you back in very quickly second time round. But if you come back from England or somewhere, you start at the bottom of the queue, you mean? Well, you're either into the A&E because you're, you've got a problem. If you're a complication, you know, no one will turn you away when you have a problem. You know, that's the thing in Ireland that if you're sick you will be dealt with but it's the people who, 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 who linger are the ones who have the middle problems the ones where it's not going to kill you but my god it's, it's, it's not very but nice but the Americans say this all the time they yeah. say that if you're poor black and you're living in what they call the projects in yes. the tenement yeah. Yeah. they say listen if you're sick we look after you nobody will die that's but true. The they won't die. They won't die. Like if someone goes into a diabetic coma, they will get care. And then they'll be dumped out without their insulin. 
So it'll happen again. Actually, that's a bit, a bit of fair. Perhaps uh, uh, the better one is asthma. Apparently, what happens in, in the, for, for poor folk in America is that when they have a, an awful, life-threatening asthma attack, they're whisked in and are dealt with because that's part of the emergency programme. But um, asthma needs ongoing management. You need to be taught how to use your inhalers and have regular checks and make sure you're doing this and that and the other and look for other problems. And that bit doesn't happen. So, that, that, so then in six months' time, they're back in again at death's door in the emergency department. Because they haven't been, but they we're heading, in, yeah. in your view, in that direction, are we not? No, we're not, because um, um, why? We're not. In terms of overload, we are, because um, the reason why we're not is is that see, the public system in Ireland is actually terribly good, really. Like you know, um, like um, the person I spoke to last week actually was heading into an appointment uh, with with a, in a hospital over in the west, um, and. Um, when he, and he, he had in his head that the consultant was basically messing him around and he was going to go in and, you know, start accusing him and write letters uh, blaming the consultant to the CEO and to the politicians. And I said, no, 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 no. Your consultant is mortified, absolutely mortified and wants to help you. And when you come in, he'll think, oh, my God, you were supposed to have this done months ago and you haven't. So, you know, he's on your side. Just tell him how you tell him how bad you are. And he will then try and yank you in. Yeah. And he actually is getting prioritised now. The other alternative, of course, would be to go to school and presentation college Cork. The yes. consultant would then be another Cork fan absolutely. who was impressed. Yes. And then you'd ring him up and say, Georgie here, you know, we were in class together. Yeah. I've got asthma and he'd say, see you Tuesday, well, it George. didn't rush my mum when she had a broken arm. All right. Okay. Okay. The, the answer to solve the health crisis is everybody goes to school in Prescock. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. It's, uh, I'm not sure what time it is, down under, but it's been late at night, and I'm joined on the telephone by my, my old mate, Father Brendan Purcell. Father Purcell, welcome to the programme. Hello there, George. It's 9.30 over p.m. over here, so we're just nine hours ahead of you. All right, OK. Well, I was watching a fabulous Australian dame um, win the hurdles in the International Athletics Championships, the World Championships. I don't know whether you were watching that or not. I just heard about, apparently she's had a lot of misfortune. She, she came back from nowhere. Yeah, Sally back. Pearson, I think, is her name. Although yeah, she might pretty be, heroic. Yeah, heroic. Now, look, this is very important to you because you've had a royal inquiry in Australia. One of the things they've recommended is that Catholic priests should fail criminal charges if they do not report sexual abuse that is disclosed to them during confession. In other words, break the seal of confession. What say you? Well, I suppose for starters, any priest, especially for any Catholic priest, has got to say that the abuses that have happened are horrendous. I mean, it's just, let's get it very, very clear. We want to end that. And I think, you know, the churches in most countries are getting their act together at long last. So that'll be for starters. After that, then, you have to say, have a look. Just think back a bit. Am I going to, are we going to help any child by this? It's, uh, the mind boggles at how, how would you ever even know if a priest had heard in confession? You know what I mean? How would a law like that be applied? But the basic point would be, why not have a look at a few other related areas, like lawyers' privileges? So if, I'm, if I've killed somebody, can I go to, has the lawyer required to report the crime? Because if he had to, no one's going to go near a lawyer anymore. You know what I mean? Same for journalists, although they're not protected, as you know, in law. Journalists now and then have to face the courts and go to jail rather than reveal a source. But I'm just saying, there are a few areas in society where we realize that protect, to protect the society, we have to protect things that seem as if it would be a great idea if they reveal them. And yet, we can't do it because we'd break the relationship completely between a priest here in confession yeah, yeah, and the person yeah. felt he was going to talk about it. 
I always worry about politicians or commissions or whatever because, like, they come up with ideas but don't appear to think it through. Like, uh, first of all, um, the confession is a fairly dark place. So you, the, the fellow on the other side of the wire, you you don't really know who he is. He he confesses to a sexual abuse, but he doesn't say, my name is Joe Bloggs and I'm living at num- number 37. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. so what are you supposed it, to do now been... as a priest? Are you supposed to rush out apprehend your man and hold him <laughs> until the cops arrive. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. And in the end of the day, I mean, I just think of most, uh, let's say, the one abuser I knew well, who happened to be a priest from my own class, who did six years hard time, and, you know, may, may have, you know, that was it. But he, from the friends of my own class who knew him well, he seems to have always been in denial. And I've heard that said of others as well that I didn't know, that you're, at least many abusers do not regard what they're doing as wrong. I mean, this is horrendous for us for anybody to think about it. How could they let that through? Maybe they can't face themselves and so they keep it up. So they're not likely to come to confession anyway. And uh, so what the Archbishop here, our, our kind of boss in, in Sydney, has said, for example, if an abuser came to told a confessor of this crime, the confessor is free to ask him to repeat this to him outside confession so they can resolve together yeah. what further action might be taken. In other words, if someone came to me, I would follow that advice and say, look, okay, I can't ever talk about what you told me in here. Would you feel like you could tell me outside? I can't talk, walk you off to a police station, by the way. But would you feel you could tell me outside? And then we could see what you should do about it. In other words, it's not an absolute impossibility that someone could be persuaded to do no. something about it. But it would have to happen totally separate from what they okay. told in confession. But the, the the Irish were ahead of the Aussies here, Brendan. You'd be delighted to hear. Because when the tarnished of Frances Fitzgerald was Minister for Justice, she was rabbiting on about forcing... Uh, priests to break the seal of confession. Well, I mean, I think again, I mean, the scenario here would be, are you really serious about ending child abuse as much as you can? Why pick on the institution where in Ireland it was apparently, I mean, it's horrific, 4% of clergy, at least in our diocese, and maybe one other diocese, in others it's slower than that. But most of the abuse, I remember being on with a minister for children on a, a Marion Fanucan program on a Saturday, Sunday morning, and he said, look, 90, I have no way, I'm not a figures man, but he said 96% of abuses don't happen in places like church institutions. They happen in families and places like that. So if you really wanted to have a look at that, it's not just to get us off the hook. My goodness, we, if, the, we're, if, you know, if we've done wrong, let's face it, let's deal with it. But the reality is, this is a kind of a red herring as far as I can see. By the way, we have a guy, I checked him out, I wasn't sure how to pronounce his name, John Nepomuk, and he's a, a, a priest in Prague who is a kind of a vicar general or something like that. Now, the story is, I don't absolutely know if it's true, but it's certainly been held up, that he was asked by King Wenceslaus IV, definitely not good King Wenceslaus, <laughs> whose wife went to this guy for confession. And, you know, he wanted to know what your man, had to, his wife, had told him in confession. And apparently he wouldn't open his mouth. He was tortured. And then if any Irish visitors are in Prague, you'll see a five-star cross on the Charles River Bridge, where apparently he was in. So even if it's not fully true, I mean, it's one of these legends that's built up. Nonetheless, it makes the point that any priest, and I, I can't imagine anywhere in the world, and I'm not a particularly brave guy, any guy is going to go to jail, even would be sent, sentenced to life, would, would he be put to death, any would say this is one thing that absolutely is not is not up for negotiation. There's no priest who's going to say they're going to talk, that they'll take the consequences right. if the law decided it. Okay, you can take the Fifth Amendment on this question if you want to, okay? 
<laughs> All right, you can plead the fifth. Uh, well, in the tens of thousands of confessions that you've heard in your lengthy career as a priest, was there ever a moment when somebody told you something that uh, might have been uh, seriously or marginally illegal, the act that they were sinning, that they had sinned? Oh, you bet. Really? <laughs> I wasn't Absolutely. expecting that, Brendan. Sorry. Okay. But the scenario, the scenario would be just to give you one little point. I remember there was, an, there was a case in America where a guy rang the police about two people, two girls who were in danger. He couldn't tell them anything more. The cops understood he couldn't tell them anything more, and they protected the girl. In other words, you can't say anything about who said it, where it said it, and so on. But in an absolutely extreme case, you might give a warning that would prevent something terrible happening. All right, but like. What about, is it a sin for me, like, to have 10 points and then drive the car? Is that a sin? Oh, yes. Well, put it this way, I don't know what the, the drink drive, and for me, actually, my limit, I used to notice when I had a half, a, a glass of Guinness, a half a pint years ago as a student, a chaplain kind of teacher in the uni, I used to drive through red lights on my little Honda 50, so I have a very, very low alcohol tolerance. So, but you, I don't, know, I don't know what you're able to cope with. So, in other words, the moral stuff would come in, what I would often say to people in confessions, what is your own personal red line? What do you notice that you wouldn't be in control of? And I mean, that's up to your conscience. So I'm not enforcing the law. I'm not a policeman. So what the law says about the limits, that wouldn't worry as much as what you know you can't do. And if you found, like, I, I know I can't even have a half a pint. No, but uh, uh, Brendan, the point I suppose I'm trying to make is uh, there, uh, get away from the child abuse thing, you know, which is a very obvious yeah, yeah, target. Yeah, yeah. But there must be a ton of men and women going to confession, not in, not in as many numbers as they used to, I admit, but, but still who go to confession and confess to uh, some kind of illegal activity, right? So uh, do you, does a priest then sort of say, okay, three Hail Marys and resolve never no, to no. sin again or what did let's, it? Let, well, no, let's take the obvious one. Now you've always got to have what we call a purpose of amendment. You'll have to make a promise before God, yeah. not me. As I said, look, I'm just an idiot. I'm just working for him. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the obvious one would be financial stuff. Right. So someone goes and rags, robs the AIB and they've got 20,000 under their belt somewhere. I can't forgive him unless he pays that back. Unless he, you know, and he has to be saved. Why would he come to confession if he's not saved? So there's no way. And even if, say, he didn't pay his tax and it was up to whatever, 50000 or something, and he can't pay it back in his lifetime, I still have to say you have got to make every effort to pay up to whatever you can manage to pay between now and when you kick the bucket. I can't forgive him unless he pays it back. So that sort of stuff, there's, you know, there's an obvious, when you come to material things like that, there's no way you can just gloss over and say, you, can, you know, you're forgiven now, you can keep the dough. You know, you just can't do that. Oh, you can't? No, no, you, they've got to give the money back. I can't forgive them unless he promises there and then to take serious effort, to make a serious effort. And sometimes you have to say to someone, look, if the most you can manage is 100, say 100 euro a month, 100 euro a week, you have got to pay back that for the rest of your life. I can't forgive him unless he or her, unless they promise to pay back that back. It's, otherwise, we're cutting ourselves. They're not really sorry for what they did if they're going to keep the proceeds. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it's, that's an interesting thing, Brendan. Now, my guest, remember, from Australia, Father Brendan Purcell, late of University College Dublin. But it's an interesting thing, Brendan, that you would have to assume when somebody comes to confession, 
that they have a belief in the sacrament, first of all, to come Absolutely. there. And then when they come there, and whether it's income tax, robbing the bank, or whatever it might be, you have to think that the reason they came to confession is that because they have a purpose of amendment. Absolutely. And you always presume that you're always so grateful when they come. I mean, a comment from, a typical comment from me is, look, being a Christian isn't being perfect. It's being ready to start again. You're, you're coming here to make a new start. We do our be- absolute best to help you do that. So, I mean, you do all that for the person, no matter what. But you never can avoid uh, the scenario that a purpose of amendment means. Let's say, say for example, someone comes to me and they are, let's say, let's take an easy enough case. They're addicted to drugs or to, to alcohol, whatever you like. And so they're, a, see, they're an alcoholic. They're seriously down the road in that. All I can ask that person to do is what AA would ask them to do. Because if they promise before God they're not going to drink again, I'll only expect for them, do the best you can one day at a time right. today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Okay. All right. Thanks so much for joining me late at night. Oh, the late night Thanks chat shows, the late night <laughs> chat shows will be starting soon to keep you occupied. <laughs> uh, we, village, God bless you. Take care. Father Brendan Purcellar uh, in Australia, I must say, um, we've, we've missed him. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK. Uh, well, welcome back. High Noon, George here. Uh, well, the only thing we know about Brexit is that we know nothing. So therefore, that's a boon to us broadcasters because we can talk about it every day uh, and we've got a different talk, thing to talk about it. Well, um, the UK is now suggesting that they would have a temporary deal um, which would help us here in Ireland. To explain it all to me is Professor Gavin Barrett at the Sutherland School of Law in University College Dublin. Professor Barrett, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much indeed, George. Now I'm I have from to... Stratford-upon-Avon in England, actually, in Brexitland, the heart of Brexitland. <laughs> <laughs> now, this morning, um, the, the good Phil Hogan, uh, mastermind of water judges, he says the, the British are deluded if they think they can have some sort of soft border for a temporary period. Is that right? Um, yes, well, I, I suppose he's throwing a little bit of um, cold water on what's going on over here, because what's happening at the moment uh, within the British Cabinet uh, is that there's a kind of a civil war, if you like, going on between the um, what you might call the more reasonable faction who want to make Brexit as soft as possible and uh, as, uh, as gentle on the British economy as possible, um, who would include the likes of Philip Hammond, the, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, and then the more hardliners, um, uh, who would include um, 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 uh, Michael Gove and, uh, and, and Liam Fox and people like that, who, who want a kind of hell or high water Brexit, uh, anything, if you like, to get out of the European Union. Uh, and uh, basically the paper that the British government uh, has produced um, or is producing today uh, is kind of a compromise in that kind of civil war, in a sense, uh, in that it advocates um, a kind of a temporary uh, transition deal. The British are going to need a transition deal anyway. And what they're suggesting is that uh, as that kind of transition uh, deal, uh, that, um, uh, that the United Kingdom would have um, a, a, what they call a close association for a limited period um, 
with the with the European Union Customs Union, which in actual fact, in substance, pretty much means that they would stay in the Customs Union for, uh, they say, three years. I think it would be a lot longer than that because it would take longer uh, to negotiate a permanent deal, uh, and um, uh, and and that is what they're saying. So that would, if you like, resolve the civil war or at least temporarily within the British cabinet. But of course, there's another perspective to this as well. That's the European Union's one. Um, they, you know, are, are, are going to be looking at this and saying, well, we want a number of things. We want the British to pay, pay the Brexit bill. Um, we want them to, um, uh, you know, to treat European Union citizens in, in, in Britain um, uh, appropriately and so on and so forth. So if we're not seeing movement in relation to those issues, you're not getting your temporary deal. And I think that's what Phil Hogan is trying to alert them to, that just because you think um, uh, temporarily staying uh, in the customs union uh, is, uh, is, is a great idea doesn't necessarily mean that that view will be shared by the other member states of the European Union. Now, a great thing that uh, politicians are often accused of is kicking the can down the road. I mean, now, isn't this a classic example of kicking the can down the road? To stay in the customs union for three years, and then three years you have precisely the same problem. What do you do? Well, um, uh, it is kicking the can down the road, um, uh, but I, I think from an Irish point of view, it's very desirable that this particular can be kicked down the road, because um, leaving uh, the customs union uh, in effect uh, is the determining issue on whether we get a hard border in Ireland or not. Um, um, you know, uh, Theresa May has gone on a lot uh, about, you know, wanting a frictionless border um, um, uh, you know, about not going back to the borders of the past and so on and so forth. That's so much verbiage to be honest with you at the end of the day. The core issue is, is the UK staying in the Customs Union or not. And if they stay even in a temporary basis um, in the Customs Union, that's good for us because that means you effectively won't be getting a hard border. And you know, who knows what's going to happen down the line a little bit. And I think that's probably what Philip Hammond is banking on because, you know, at the moment, um, the, the majority in favour of Brexit is looking ever rockier. And who knows, perhaps a couple of years down the line, it might disappear altogether okay. and they might change their minds. Yeah, but uh, the, the position of Ireland specifically, it's a bit much for us, is it not, to expect that uh, 20-odd countries in Europe are going to turn around and say, ah, yeah, it's fine, give Ireland a special deal, we'll take all the manure and we'll take our our, our citizens being, being treated as second-class citizens in Britain and we'll take uh, lack of freedom of movement and so on. As long as the good old Irish are happy, everything's fine. They're not going to accept that. Well, I, I suppose it is true. I mean, if, if you're in the European Union, basically, it's like a club, um, and everyone's interests have to be taken into account. So I suppose the advantage of that is that when it comes to the Brexit um, negotiations, uh, that um, if, you, if you like, you have all the punching power. And it's interesting, in, in issue after issue, the British are actually conceding um, to, the, to the European Union, because basically, um, I remember uh, John Fitzgerald, of the, formerly of the SRI, uh, saying that the smaller party in international negotiations comes effectively as the beggar to the table. That's the reality that Ireland had to face for years. Um, so, for instance, when we negotiated the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement before we joined what's now the European Union in the 1960s, we didn't get a particularly good deal because the, the British had all the cards in their hands. Um, what happens with the negotiations with the European Union uh, is that Britain um, uh, is not necessarily going to get a very good deal because all the, the cards, quite frankly, are in the hands of the European Union. So the advantage, if you like, of negotiating as one of 27 with the European Union uh, is that you are on the dominant side. Um, 
Um, and um, as, as long as you can get your voice heard to the maximum extent uh, within that um, uh, t- uh, 27, then you, you, know, you okay. get the best deal proper, um, but, um, um, uh, possible. That's, but that's we possible. are reading that Irish people, I don't know how many, but certainly some have gone public on it, that their employers in the UK are talking to them as Irish uh, 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 slash European citizens that they should look to their position. Do you buy that? Um, well, I, I, you know, it, it seems to be key to the position of um, Theresa May, for example, that she wants to cut down on migration. And I think there's, there's no doubt, um, I think, that, the, um, uh, that a large part of what motivated um, the vote um, in relation to um, uh, Brexit, the vote in favour of Brexit, uh, was, was uh, you know, really confusion, if you like, between the, the, the issues of migration uh, and uh, the European Union, yeah, even though the European Union is not actually responsible for a huge amount of the migration that has taken part um, over the years into the United Kingdom. Whatever one thinks of it, um, uh, so um, you know it, it, it is true that that um, uh, is something that seems to motivate a lot of people, or has okay. motivated a lot of people on the Brexit side. But on the other hand, I mean, I think one has to be real um, uh, about this. The reality is that any functioning modern economy needs migrants uh, to, to to work in it. And uh, you know, Brexit or no Brexit, the reality of the matter is that the United Kingdom is going to need, continue to need uh, migrants uh, from Ireland, uh, from all around the European Union, uh, and. My bet is that no matter what uh, happens in relation to Brexit, uh, that that reality is going to have to be confronted by the British, and that's that's just the way it's going to have to be. All right. Thank you so much for joining me and taking our call, Professor Gavin Barrett at the Sutherland School of Law, University College Dublin, although he is currently, as he said, in the heart of Brexit country. Uh, He was speaking to us from uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, On the issue of the seal of confession, you didn't ask the priest a hard question, George. Would he tell an abuser that God forgives him, knowing that he cannot ever make amends to the child? Uh, The purpose of amendment is a real problem for the priest in, in that issue and I don't think I or Brendan uh, in the slightest attempted uh, to uh, gloss over that the problem is in Australia and to a degree Tarnished of Fitzgerald previously as Minister for Justice is that they, w- they would send the priest to jail if he didn't come and tell them that a fellow came in or woman came into their confessional and told them they were a child uh, uh, abuser and that is the issue and that just simply uh, won't work High Noon with George Hook thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK well, uh, we're heading off to Boston, Massachusetts, uh, to a possibly homeless Michael Graham. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he's left his apartment empty last week and uh, the bailiffs have been around. Michael, welcome to the program. Wait, wait, stop talking. I'm waiting for the Lichtensteinian soccer update. <laughs> I can't continue my day without. I love the idea that you think that Lichtensteinian soccer would be any more ridiculous than just regular soccer, that awful sport you people play. Mm, yeah. The other awful sport you people play is panic over everything, assuming that there's some government program to fix it. Look, I don't know why this is so amazing. You guys, like us, had an economic downturn. A lot of housing was you know, left vacant. A lot of investment didn't pay off. A lot of government-subsidized and government-backed bets because you guys were throwing around German money like it was you know, German money you know, bailed. 
Now you've got this recovery. Your economy is growing, and so the demand has exceeded the supply. Builders are working on it. I was just reading a fascinating article about how the Irish government – I want to give them credit – passed a, a measure that took effect in July that if you're building a unit of 100 you know a, a project of 100 units or more you can now fast track the approvals so they can get that going and but in the meanwhile you have this thing called supply and demand and there is no just like your water system there is no substitute the EU cannot pass a regulation that upends supply and demand so stop whining about the high rents let the in private investors make a ton of money building new housing that they sell for the top dollar they can get it's a great system it's a great system for capitalists, basically. Yes. Yeah, you believe capitalism is the answer to everything, whereas well, in well, fact, me, well, hold on now, no, no, hold on now. Downtown Moscow, like, is a great. Uh, people are are heading there in droves, really, because of the utopian lifestyle of communism. I mean, everybody wants to go to Moscow. Everybody wants to buy a house in Moscow. I just don't understand the people who think that you know we've got to have more restrictions. We've got to force people to build housing basically where you know because I, I, I don't want it near me. You know, it's in the in America we have a phrase George called NIMBY, not in my backyard. And so you have a you know a community where someone says we we need senior housing for example that this just happened not long ago in Connecticut we need senior housing we're going to build 50 units in this property and all of the homeowners in the area came and said no we want zoning laws to stop you from building that well why cuz we're already here and we've got what we want, so screw you. Yeah, but hold a while. If you, uh, in your spacious apartment in Boston, if you leave it vacant, do you think it's fair that you should be taxed for leaving it vacant? Do you think uh, that's fair? Of course fair? not. And I, and I don't think it's fair to make Granny worry that she's going to lose her nursing home you know, benefits if because she refuses to rent her the home she was in to a total stranger. I don't think it's fair to use tax dollars from people who are already paying their mortgage and paying their rent to subsidize goofy programs that are just going to create jobs for Irish bureaucrats and not fix the housing problem. I don't. I think all of this is crazy and idiotic. Meanwhile, you can see the problem fixing itself. I understand the the conversation. We're frustrated that pricing housing prices have gone up. It's a third of your income to cover your rent or mortgage. I understand that. I don't understand the and we're angry that people are getting rich fixing that problem. What could be better than a fixing the problem and b people getting rich? Yeah. The other thing, I don't know whether you know much about the foundation of the United States of America, um, <laughs> but apparently when Jefferson and the boys were were uh, formulating the Constitution, uh, the, the, the Virginians had headed off on the stagecoach, and then suddenly they discovered that German was going to be passed as the language <laughs> of the USA. So they sent a runner after the Virginians, and they brought them back, and they voted in favor of English. So were it not for the Virginian delegation, you and I will be having this conversation in German. Now, that it comes as great news to the Germans who have discovered that nobody in Germany speaks German. What do you think about that story? I urge everyone to find this uh, Telegraph story. I posted on my Twitter feed, I am M. Graham. I assume you guys have it up too, George. But just reading it is magnificent. I just want, can I read a couple of lines? Yeah. And I want you to imagine this being read with a few words differently at a Donald Trump rally. 
One of Germany's most prominent politicians has launched an outspoken attack against the increasing use of English in everyday life. He wants a crackdown. Quote, coexistence can only work in Germany if we all speak German, Jens Spahn said. We can and should expect this from every immigrant. It drives me up the wall the way waiters in Berlin restaurants only speak English. You never find this sort of lunacy in Paris. I got to tell you, George, you changed just a couple of key words on that, and you are listening to a meeting of the uh, alt-right in the United States gathering for another riot. Well, you does that mean you're opposed to the idea of people in Germany only speaking English? I mean, do you not think that if you're in Germany and you're a migrant, it behoves you to, to learn German? Oh, of course I think that. The problem is that I've been told my entire adult life that thinking that people who immigrate to America should speak English. I was just told weeks ago when the new immigration plan was announced and it's going to put a premium on people who have mastered English that that was racist, xenophobic hate. And yet here we are in the home of Angela Merkel and Open Borders announcing this exact same policy. That's what I'm sorry. That's the point I was trying to make. I was I've been told my entire adult life that good German European Brussels people hate ideas like this. Well, it makes sense, though, when you listen to this German, that uh, the problem for Germany is, because Merkel just shot from the hip one day and said, listen, as many millions as want to come to <laughs> Germany, just pop pop over the border. And, of course, she then discovered that this wasn't actually the way to get elected. Um, and uh, the thing is that the French, the interesting thing about the French, if you right. go to France and you've never been outside South Carolina. If <laughs> if you go to France and you speak English to somebody, even though he speaks English, he won't speak to you. He'd speak French to you because okay, yeah, they I'm, value their language. They well, value a, their culture. Two quick things. Number one, I know the best place for cassoulet in Paris. So don't tell me that I haven't <laughs> been to France. And number two, of course, it's common sense that people who are going to share a common government and choose to live together as citizens would speak a common language in addition to the many other languages you speak. But, George, let me read a sentence to you. You will never – I'm going to make up a sentence. You will never read in an article like this. European politician complained that all the waiters speak Arabic. There's a problem with Arabic speakers not learning our local language. You will never, ever hear that statement because that's the form of uh, common sense reason that you are not allowed to display uh, in the, among the European left today. And I think I, it's interesting you do you say that because you tend to say things that many of us are thinking. Um, I think the, the 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 German politician chose the word English because yep. it was an easy target. Absolutely. What he was really talking about is that migrants these these tens, nay, hundreds of thousands of migrants now entering Germany are not making an effort to, to, to co, he talks about coexistence. And he says, co in order to have coexistence, you must have language. 
But see, I don't th- – and I hate that phrase coexistence because I like the American model. I know it doesn't work everywhere. But I like this idea that it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, what language you spoke when you were born. If you embrace the fundamental ideas of America laid out in the Constitution, you become a citizen, then we don't coexist. We live together. We're all you know, – the, the guy who got sworn in as a citizen from Dublin or from the Dominican Republic last week is just as American as my – Great grandfather, as Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Okay, so they had a little issue with my great great grandfather, but you see what I'm saying. I get that Europe, because you guys are, are, let's face it, more xenophobic and racist, that you have problems because you have these pre-existing ideas of what it means to be Irish, French, German that are beyond your government. They're cultural. They're embedded in the way you've lived for thousands of years. We're a new country. We don't have that, and I like our. Away much better. No, but hold on now. Theodore Roosevelt, a bit before your time, Theodore Roosevelt said, I have no problem with anybody coming into this country from any place on the planet, providing that they give allegiance to the flag. And so Theodore Roosevelt, I don't know, it's got to be 1920s, I suppose, Mm -hmm. maybe even earlier. um, Theodore Roosevelt was saying, look, if you want to come in this country, you better be an American. Don't right. come in here and think you're something else. And I think that's what the German guy was saying. And and it's something which we, all of us in Europe, at our peril, uh, ignore. Right. And that's why this great new book, the, the Strange Death of Europe, is so good, because it lays out the fact that Europeans, whether they're in Ireland or France or Switzerland or whatever, aren't willing to defend the idea that, hey, we've got this culture and, and we like it and it's got good things about it. And so if you want to come and live here, we don't want you to coexist with us here in a separate culture. We want you to to join okay. us, to join us. And that the fact that you that I say you that Europeans can't defend that idea shows what is the number one problem with Europe? Cowardice gutlessness, weasels. You're cowardly, gutless weasels, George. All right. And I mean that in love. Yes. Now, Charlottesville um, is in the headlines here, but I was looking this morning at my New York Times, and uh, President Trump's rating is now at a new record low. This predicated, according to the article, by the fact that he did not condemn uh, the white supremacists in Charlottesville finally appears to have done so. Um, why did he not do it immediately, do you think? That is a gr- that's a great question. My column in the Boston Herald this morning uh, covers that. Some people think that it's because you know Trump is secretly a you know, white supremacist, anti-Semitic Klansman, which, of course, will come as great news to his daughter, Yael Kushner, which is the name that Ivanka took when she converted to Judaism. So, you know, I don't think that that's the case. I don't think that Donald Trump is a racist closet or otherwise. Here's what I fear. Trump is not a conservative. He never has been. He wasn't really a Republican. He talked about running for president as a, you know, a member of other parties until recently. He's a New Yorker. He swam for 70 years in the New York media market listening to the New York Times and you know CNN and blah, blah, blah. And their vision – of conservatives and Republicans says that we're all a bunch of racists, that inside the heart of every Republican beats you know, a Confederate soldier waiting to get out. They think that the phrase free market is just code for Heil Hitler. And I'm afraid that what we're seeing from Trump is not what he thinks of minorities or what he thinks of the alt-right. I'm afraid what we're seeing is what he thinks of his supporters. He thinks 
His supporters are the racist bigots, knuckle draggers that CNN, MSNBC, and the New York Times have told him they are. He thinks this is what they want to hear. And one of the reasons why he's tanking is because, of course, they're not. And so they're just as mad at him for his idiocy uh, on the Charlottesville story as everyone else. And so he's making it harder for people who are trying to cut him a break to stick with him because of of of, of how little he thinks of them. And they're starting to figure it out. Well, are we talk like just how dangerous? When I was on television, after I, I was pretty well the only, certainly the only Irish journalist who suggested that Trump would win the election, um, right? Because I always thought he would win the election because of of uh, the way America is, the way Middle sure. America is versus the the, the coastal regions. But having mm-hmm. said that, um, have we now got absolutely? the wrong person in the White House, and if Hillary Clinton, crook and all that she is, if Hillary Clinton were in the White House, America would be in a better place. No, I, I, you know, what's sad is I don't agree that we would be in a better place because she's so awful. And that's the problem of the 2016 election. It was your choice, cholera or malaria. There was no upside. So it would be, for example, Kim who just announced that he will not be firing North Korean missiles towards Guam would not be backing down from Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton was part of the mess that brought us a nuclear North Korea in the first place. So I could go on and on that way. But I want to go back to something you were talking about, you know, Trump winning and the surprise and why did he win and what does it say about America? Every political movement has its unacceptable fringe. In America, we have violent Black Lives Matter activists who are the fringe of a legitimate movement about the way the police treat black people. Those violent, set people on fire people are not the movement. We have true communists in the Democratic Party, Bernie Sanders to the left, and they're true socialists. Anyone who says that the American Democratic Party is a bunch of socialists and that they want to return to the glories of the uh, Soviet Union – Well, you're right that that's a small percentage, but that's not who they are. And the same is true with the coalition elected Donald Trump. There are absolutely people who long to go back to the 1950s and when a white man can walk down the street and blah, blah, blah. And that is a small part of his coalition. It really makes me angry that the media in particular are letting the fringes of these groups set the tone. And they're saying the reason you voted for Trump has to be the same reason that the worst people voted for Trump. Instead of acknowledging that 90-whatever percent of Americans voted for him, don't agree with that at all. Just like millions of people who voted for Bernie Sanders aren't want to be socialists. But the media will not have that conversation, and they're making it harder and harder for us to find a way to move together on ideas because it's all character assassination. All right. Well, interestingly, uh, an extraordinarily smart lady uh, from the U.S. at Harvard, who formerly was at University College Dublin here, Erin Bowman. Erin says to you, I'm amazed she listens to you. It's extraordinary. Um, (laughs) She has the problem with the language argument with George and Michael is the U.S. does not have an official Mm. language, so no legal basis for linguistic exclusion how about i would i i i decline to correct people who are clearly smarter than me but we have in our federal immigration law the requirement that if you want to become a citizen you must pass an english proficiency test just like you have to pass a civics test you have to know what the declaration is about look finally before you go we're running a linguistic test here on news talk for possible contributors to the program Are you happy to take the linguistic text? I'm ready. 
Have you got a pen and paper, Henley? I'm ready. I'm ready. Just no math. Don't no, give me any math. No, no. Rearrange the letters. Okay. P-N-E-I-S into the name of an important human body part best when erect. I better give you the answer before you get me flung off the air. The answer is. Am I answering or is my wife answering? No, the answer is spine. S P I N E. (laughs) Gotcha, Graham. Uh, Yes, you did, George, as usual. (laughs) I I love the fact that you are somewhere above the age of 60 and have the sense of humor of of a six year old. I love that. (laughs) Talk to you next week. We have that in common, George. Talk to you next week. High Noon with George Hook. Thanks to ClaytonHotels.com with 17 hotels across Ireland and the UK.